DW Inside Europe. Hello and welcome. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. On today's programme, farmers to the fore. Dutch provincial elections deliver a clear winner. Drone downing, all eyes on the skies. Shadow government, the Belarusian opposition opens its own embassy in Brussels. You can't uh, deal with the dictatorship when all the rules are ignored. And after the attack, disquieting questions following the shooting at a Jehovah's Witness Centre in Hamburg. Those stories and more coming up on the programme. The race is on to try to retrieve the remnants of a US MQR Reaper drone, which crashed into the Black Sea following a collision with a Russian fighter jet on Tuesday. Should Russia locate the wreckage first, that would represent a significant intelligence win. But what exactly is a Reaper drone and what was it doing at the time of the downing? To find out more, I spoke to security expert William Alberk, Director of Strategy, Technology and Arms Control at the International Institute for Strategic Studies, a think tank which is headquartered in London. Well, so the Reaper is a unmanned aerial vehicle. They can be armed or unarmed. This particular Reaper was on an unarmed mission. Uh, they can be armed with the Hellfire uh, anti-tank missile. Uh, and have been used in different war theaters, but in this case with a full suite of intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance equipment to be able to look into the conflict and to watch what the Russians are doing in Ukraine. Reapers have been on relatively constant flights uh, throughout the conflict uh, in the Black Sea and over mainland Europe, uh, trying to look in and see what they can see and provide Ukraine with information about Russian troop movements, as well as to provide deeper insights to the United States and uh, its allies. I said there that the drone had been downed after a collision with a Russian fighter jet. Collision there was perhaps a little euphemistic. What can you tell me about the circumstances that led to the drone's downing? So the Russian foreign ministry is saying that they were tailing it and it just suddenly dropped out of the sky. This is incredibly unlikely. These are unbelievably stable and very, very airworthy airframes. Uh, what the United States is saying, and which I think is highly more credible over not just the evidence of this incident, but over the past 10 years of close encounters with Russian aircraft, is that the Russian aircraft were harassing the drone, attempting to fly very close to it to try to make it deviate from its flight path over international waters, it should be said, and uh, apparently dumped uh, spare fuel onto the drone to try to damage its sensors. And eventually, it appears that the Su-27 put its nose or its wing into the propeller. The Russian action took the drone out of the sky. So the Russian pilot deliberately put his aircraft into the drone in order to knock it down. Obviously, the fear is that an incident like this has the potential to become a dangerous flashpoint for escalation. How well founded are those fears in this instance? And also, what can we learn from the response to the incident on both sides about the appetite for escalation? 
I have faith that there are mechanisms in place to resolve these types of incidents. It is remarkable that the United States said that this was unprofessional behavior by the pilot. I think they're trying to provide Russia with a little bit of wiggle room here to prevent it from turning into a war of the words. But I'm sure there are very stern words happening behind the scenes between the two sides, uh, because you're absolutely right. This could spiral. Um, you can imagine. So I mentioned the RC-135. This is a- an old 707-type airliner airframe that the military uses for intelligence collection. There's more than 20 airmen on these planes. You can imagine if a Russian craft crashes into one of those deliberately or, or even just by trying to coerce the Americans to move the aircraft and kills 20, 25 airmen, Congress would be baying for blood. This could really get out of control at a political level. Uh, And it just shows you how reckless Russia can be and how much Putin himself is willing to accept risk in situations where a responsible leader would not be ordering his pilots into this type of situation. So good reason, therefore, all eyes to be on the skies at the moment. But I'd like to slip in a question, if I may, about Ukraine and the situation On the ground, I know that you are someone who spends a lot of your time poring over maps of the war zone. What are those maps telling you at the moment? Well, what they're telling me is that this is what you would expect. Russia has reverted to Soviet-style artillery raised earth tactics. This is just like what they did in the Second Chechen War. This is a playbook that goes way back for them, and they are using their manpower advantage, especially from the conscription that happened a few months ago, to just send troops into the meat grinder and wear the Ukrainians down. It's a battle of attrition, and Russia's got the numbers, and so they're able to push Ukraine back. At the same time, Ukraine has detected an opportunity in Bakhmut, in the center of the Donbass, where Russia seems willing to throw any number of troops into an, and armor into an incredibly hopeless situation to try to push the Ukrainians back. So in exchange for very small parts, pieces of land, Ukraine has been able to extract an extraordinary manpower and armor cost from the Russians. Unfortunately, the losses on the Ukrainian side are not insubstantial. So it's a, it's a very hard calculus that Ukraine has to make to try to hold as much territory as possible, to try to find those places where they can get advantage and grind the Russians down, while at the same time waiting for the German and European-supplied Leopard 2 tanks to reach the battlefield. But as those numbers increase, the opportunities for Ukraine to mount a counteroffensive a lightning attack using armor, using high maneuverability to outflank the Russians and to break parts of the Russian line. This is what Ukraine is hoping for, to hold the Russians for as long as possible. And then as the spring goes on, to launch surprise counterattacks to push the Russians back. William Alberg is Director of Strategy, Technology and Arms Control at the International Institute for Strategic Studies, a think tank headquartered in London. Politics in the Netherlands has long had the uncanny capacity to foreshadow trends which then go on to establish themselves across Europe. That's why when a newly established populist farmer-led party emerged as the clear winner of this week's provincial elections, which also impact the composition of the Senate, other countries sat up and took notice. For Prime Minister Mark Rutte, the results are a severe blow, both to his prospects of re-election and to his ambitious nitrogen reduction plans, which are key to his bid to meet environmental demands set by the EU. So 
a lot to unpick there. Here's Stefan Boss. Caroline van der Plas appeared visibly moved as the win for her BBB or Boer Burgerbeweging, the Farmer Citizen Movement, was seen as a decisive protest vote against Prime Minister Mark Rutte and his four party centre right governing coalition. With a group of 26 people, we managed to get a seat in Parliament two years ago. While I was in Parliament, we worked very hard to put the citizen first. The 55-year-old's victory came as voters decided on the representatives in the Netherlands' 12 provincial legislatures. Under Dutch law, they determined the makeup of the country's Senate, which can block legislation agreed upon in the lower house of Parliament. The first results showed that the BBB won 15 of 75 seats in the Senate. Prime Minister Mark Rutte's Liberal Conservative People's Party for Freedom and Democracy, or VVD, dropped from 12 to 10 seats. The setback for the 56-year-old Prime Minister followed social turmoil on issues such as environmental policies that critics say threaten the livelihood of farmers, fishermen and others. There was also public anger about scandals including ethnic profiling by tax authorities of parents receiving child benefits impacting 70,000 children, with nearly 1,700 children being taken from their homes. Because of the scandal, parents divorced or in some cases even committed suicide. There was also outrage over a lack of compensation for thousands suffering from earthquakes in the northeastern province of Groningen due to natural gas exploration. And public anger emerged over immigration in a nation where many youngsters can't start a family due to a lack of affordable housing, rising energy prices and related poverty. Prime Minister Rutte said he realized that the political landscape had changed. Of course, for the VVD, I would have preferred victory. Unfortunately, we went down from 13.3% of voters to 12.8%. That's half a percent down. Now we have to think how we can help the provinces, as the VVD, to take responsibility for policies. However, Wednesday's vote cast doubts over Rutte's plans to reduce farm nitrate pollution, as his cabinet tasked provincial legislatures with radically developing strategies to reduce emissions. The results also overshadow the remainder of Rutte's term, as he will likely face problems getting legislation through the Senate. But the BBB and several other parties argue that Dutch agriculture, among the best in the world, has already taken measures and that the nitrogen concerns are exaggerated. The government says the policies are demanded by the European Union, of which the Netherlands is a founding member. But van der Plas linked the policy to opposition within left-leaning parties towards livestock farming, with the Netherlands being the most prominent agriculture exporter after the United States. The fishermen have similar concerns about environmental policies, with footage emerging of some having to destroy their family vessels. Van der Plas was surprised that more Dutch voters supported her views than she expected. People are being made afraid that agriculture is against nature, but they don't speak about other kinds of environmental pollution. Think about plastics or the loss of bees. It isn't only about farmers. They use strange arguments to force farmers out of their lands.
Van der Plas Party is now also expected to play a role on the national waterboards, a significant position in a nation largely below sea level. The next national elections were scheduled for 2025, but could now be moved forward. Commentator said Rutte's VVD will have to reach out to climate change crisis-preaching Labour and Green Left, who looked set to have held on to their seats. Thousands of farmers and their supporters were among those protesting in recent days in a park near the temporary parliament building in The Hague. Mensen worden bang gemaakt um, dat het uh, tegen de natuur is. But BBB leader Van der Plas has urged Prime Minister Rutte to step out of what she called his cocoon and listen to the people. In its fourth consecutive term since 2010, Rutte's government has dropped to a 20% approval rating, its lowest in a decade. One of the longest ruling European leaders, he has so far refused to resign, saying he still feels he could help improve life in the Netherlands. Stefan Bos, DW. Elections cast long shadows. That is certainly the case in Belarus, where the 2020 elections saw both the opposition leader, Svetlana Sikhanouskaya, and long-term strongman President Alexander Lukashenko claim victory. Lukashenko, of course, remained in power, and Sikhanouskaya went into exile, receiving a 15-year prison sentence in absentia earlier this month. The EU never recognised the results of the election, but nor has it officially recognised Tsikhanouskaya as Belarusian president in exile. Now, Belarusian activists are pushing to change that, and their plan centres on Brussels. Here's Terry Schultz with the story. Svetlana Sikhanouskaya has received many accolades as the leader of the democratic opposition movement in Belarus. Now living in Lithuania for the safety of herself and her children, while her activist husband remains jailed by the regime, Sikhanouskaya is asking for a different kind of distinction. Diplomatic recognition of her government in exile as the official representative of Belarus. You can't uh, deal with the dictatorship when all the rules are ignored. The European Union did not accept Lukashenko's claim to victory after disputed presidential elections in 2020, but it hasn't officially recognized Sikhanouskaya as the winner either, and that's what she's asking for now. We don't want countries who don't recognize Lukashenko as legitimate person in Belarus to work with him. We want countries on national and international level on in different organizations to work with Belarusian democratic forces. Visiting Brussels recently, Sikonoskaya inaugurated a new office she hopes will be viewed like an embassy for Belarusians in exile. This new hub for democratic Belarus is very important as political center in Brussels. We are a couple of steps from European Parliament. Lukashenko has shown no signs of leaving on his own, so diplomatic recognition would likely only be symbolic at this point. But Belarusian analyst Hanna Lyabakova, also living in exile, says there are some meaningful steps that could and should be taken now to convince him to step aside. What I think we are lacking here is these practical decisions and practical consequences out of this de-recognition of Lukashenko. 
Lyubakova believes putting representatives of the government in exile in those seats could build pressure on Lukashenko, who is otherwise managing to quash most public expression of dissent by brutal treatment of anyone who speaks out. The regime has just expanded its ability to use the death penalty for those convicted of attempting to seize state power, in other words, change the government. And still, Lyubakova points out, Belarusian activists are quietly providing information every day on not just the repressive tactics of Lukashenko, but also the movement of Russian troops on their territory used in the war on Ukraine. U.S. foreign policy analyst Marcos Konolakis says any government that's against Moscow's aggression should be for recognition of the Belarusian government in exile. The United States and other nations that have currently condemned the Russian actions in Ukraine should recognize a government in exile, in particular the government, the Republic of Belarus, which has been declared by Svetlana Sihanovskaya. It's the one way that we have a diplomatic tool at this moment to be able to confront the challenges of, of this war, this Russian invasion. And uh, it's a tool that we've used elsewhere. And so I think that it's a very effective non-military tool to at least add pressure to both the Russian and the Belarusian governments. But at the inauguration of the new office in Brussels, despite plenty of handshakes and hugs for Svetlana Tsikhanouskaya, officials said diplomatic recognition of her government in exile is not on the agenda for now. Terry Schultz, DW, Brussels. And for more insights from Brussels and beyond, you can follow Terry Schultz on Mastodon or Twitter. A quick reminder of our feedback address, insideeurope at dw.com. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. For our next story, I've invited my colleague Nick Martin into the studio to talk to me about the aftermath of a story which unravelled shortly after we finished recording last week's programme. In Hamburg, a gunman walked into a Jehovah's Witness centre and opened fire. The 35-year-old attacker was himself a former follower of the Jehovah's Witness group. And it quickly emerged that police had had a chance to stop it all happening. They'd actually received an anonymous tip-off about the suspect's mental health before the shooting. And they'd also been told that the disturbed psychological state of the suspect had been there for all to read in a book that he had self-published. Nick, a really disturbing story here. So many questions. What have you been able to find out? Well, first, about the tip-off, police did receive this anonymous message about the suspect, who under Germany's press code has been named as Philip F. The tip-off alerted them that this man potentially had psychological issues and should not be in possession of a weapon. It also said that he had grievances with religious groups and his former employer. 
The suspect had been a member of the Jehovah's Witness group until about a year and a half ago, but police said that he'd left on bad terms. And local officials did pay an unannounced visit to his home to check his gun, but found there was no legal reason to confiscate his weapon. Now, the Interior Minister for Hamburg, Andy Grote, told public broadcaster NDR that those criticising the handling of the tip-off need to consider a number of factors. I find it very difficult to blame the weapons authority staff. Anonymous letters are often received. They all have a very different quality and seriousness. This is not an investigative agency, nor do any psychologists work there. These are administrative workers carrying out a procedure provided for in the Weapons Act to check whether someone is suitable to own a weapon. I mean, Nick, this all sounds very reasonable, but I mean, I, I watched parts of that press conference and it emerged that having received this tip off, basically what the authorities had done, in fact, not basically, literally what they had done was to Google the guy's name plus the German word for book. They didn't get any results under that. And so were like, oh, fine, you know, this guy's clean. They completely missed the fact that the book had been published on Amazon in Germany in December, um, that it was also available on his LinkedIn page and his own website. And uh, the, the book, just to give you a bit more detail about the book, uh, it's called The Truth About God, Jesus Christ and Satan. It's almost 300 pages long. And something that it uh, details his justifications for the shootings. Now, in it, he declares that mass murder on behalf of God is legitimate. He also asserts that Adolf Hitler was a tool of Christ. Which is particularly I mean, it's shocking anyway, but in a Jehovah's Witness context, particularly shocking because they were actually a group that was massively persecuted by the Nazis, in good part because they resisted. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses would routinely, for example, refuse to give the, the Hitler salute. They would also refuse to participate in industries that had anything to do with the war, to join the army, all that kind of thing. Absolutely. And the book goes on to contain several anti-Semitic statements. Uh, the author claimed to have had had prophetic dreams to have visited hell for three years. And he even interprets Russia's invasion of Ukraine as God's cleansing of Ukrainian sex workers. Despite the obvious psychological instability that seems to have uh, been at play here, in terms of the author himself, he presumably would have regarded this as something akin to a manifesto. Manifestos are, are um, things that often appear in the wake of shootings, of, of terror attacks. Um, what can you tell me about the significance of these types of texts? Well, I actually put that question to Caroline Schwartz, an analyst at the Institute for Global Dialogue, which is a think tank that studies extremism and radicalisation. Here's what she had to say. These have several functions, basically. So for one, it's a portrayal of ideology and a lot of the perpetrators do want to become heroes basically and this serves as the tool for this goal basically and then it is used to share ideology and to find possible new supporters for their ideology and the third one would be to communicate with people who share this ideology already. So uh, uh, some of these manifestos had inside jokes or memes that would speak to an audience who would already be familiar with this kind of ideology. 
So disturbing patterns emerging there and so many questions still left to be answered. Nick Martin, thank you so much for coming in and for researching that story for us. No problem. Just time for me here to put in a quick plug for the podcast version of this show. We are available on all the usual platforms and are always very grateful for your ratings, likes and comments as well, since they help the podcast to grow. This is Inside Europe and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. This is Inside Europe and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. Coming up in the next half hour, back to normal. The BBC reinstates Gary Lineker, but questions remain about the corporation's impartiality. I can tell you, anyone who knows me knows that, yes, 30 years ago, some political involvement, but absolutely not affected by pressure from one party or the other. That is not how we work editorially in the BBC. Media clampdown. Turkish journalists struggle to be heard in the wake of the quake. Belarus in Brussels. Opposition activists set up their own alternative embassy. Doc shock. New allegations of pontifical paedophile protection are aired in Poland. And, complicating the narrative, French cinema goers revel in revolutionary, anti-revolutionary history. That's all still to come. Broadcasting from Germany. This is Inside Europe. As you might have already picked up from that list there, there is a connecting thread running through our stories this coming half hour, since all of them are, in one way or another, about shaping, influencing or controlling the political narrative. Before we begin, however, there is something that I personally would like to get off my chest. Uh, It's a story, a true story, and it goes like this. Many years ago, I was sitting on a roller coaster in the UK. It was the Nemesis ride in Alton Towers theme park, to be exact. And I noticed that the man in front of me was a wildly famous ex-footballer turned sports presenter. And that man, ladies and gentlemen, was Gary Lineker. And I can officially report that he barely flinched the whole length of the ride. Now, fast forwards to this week, and Gary Lineker once again cut a markedly unruffled figure as all around him a major media storm raged in response to the BBC's decision to suspend him for calling out the UK government's anti-refugee rhetoric on Twitter. Whilst Lineker himself seems to have come through this storm relatively unscathed, the same cannot be said for his employer. 
Laj Bavanga reports from Manchester. The gap widened again on Wednesday. Seven games for you on Match of the Day tonight, including the top two. The BBC's Match of the Day is the longest-running football programme in the world and the hugely popular former England star Gary Lineker has presented it for nearly 25 years. Last weekend, however, the programme sounded like this. BBC took Gary Lineker off air, saying he'd broken impartiality guidelines. In a tweet to his nearly 9 million followers, he called the Conservative government's new immigration bill, aimed at banning people arriving across the English Channel in boats, immeasurably cruel. And he had something to say about how the legislation had been presented too. Here's the Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, in Parliament. The British people deserve to know which party is serious about stopping the invasion on our southern coast and which party is not. I, Madam Deputy Speaker, am utterly serious about ending the scourge of illegal migration. Gary Lineker tweeted that language used by government ministers like Braverman was not dissimilar to that used by Germany in the 1930s, painting immigrants as a scourge and likening their arrival to an invasion. The BBC is a licence fee-funded public broadcaster that strives for impartiality. Yet defenders of Lineker argue he, as a freelance sports presenter, should not be bound by the same rules as a news reporter, say. Conservative politicians, however, piled on to demand the BBC get rid of him. And then it did. Now on BBC One, sorry we're unable to show our normal match of the day too, including commentary tonight. Now in a change to the schedule, it's Bargain Hunt. The BBC had perhaps not counted on the level of support Gary Lineker would get from fellow sports broadcasters, though. No one wanted to take his seat and other sports programmes were also cancelled as presenters refused to turn up. A few days later, the BBC reinstated Lineker, but by then the damage was done. Greg Dyke is a former director-general at the BBC. The perception out there is going to be that Gary Lineker, a much-loved television presenter, was taken off air after government pressure on a particular issue. There had never been an easy solution, but asking Gary to step back off air was, I think... A significant thing. The current BBC and Director General, Tim Davey, refutes allegations of caving in to political pressure. He also says he himself is entirely impartial, despite being a Conservative politician for a while in the 1990s. I can tell you, anyone who knows me knows that, yes, 30 years ago, some political involvement, but absolutely not affected by pressure, from one party or the other. That is not how we work editorially in the BBC. Um, it's a convenient narrative. It's not true. Good evening. There is growing political pressure on BBC bosses tonight after an embarrassing climb down that saw Gary Lineker reinstated as Match of the Day presenter. The Director-General, Tim Davey, announced... Then, Monday night, Gary Lineker was allowed back, while the BBC launched an independent review of its social media guidelines. Some Conservatives have long accused the BBC of being too left-wing and should no longer be funded through licence fee, or teletax, as some put it. They saw reinstating Lineker as caving in to left-wing bias yet again. Here's Conservative Member of Parliament, Jonathan Gollis. 
feels like capitulation, as far as I'm concerned, by Tim Davey and the uh, leaders in the BBC. And essentially what Gary Lineker has been told is you can say what you want and still be paid by the state-funded broadcaster. And essentially now for me the question is whether the BBC should remain paid for by the teletax. And in my opinion that answer is very simply no. On the other side of the political spectrum, people claim the BBC is too close to the Conservative Party. The current chair of the BBC board is a Tory donor and he's under investigation for facilitating a €900,000 loan to the then Prime Minister Boris Johnson before Johnson appointed him to the role as chair. Some other BBC big beasts sympathetic to the government have not been sanctioned for their own inflammatory tweets, including one attacking trade unionists and the former Labour leader of the opposition. Meanwhile, opposition to the government's new immigration bill is growing, with demonstrations outside Parliament, where the law has been debated this week. Many here also point out that the row over Gary Lineker's tweets has completely overshadowed the real story, the passing of a bill that even the UN says is tantamount to a ban on asylum seekers, denying them the protection they are entitled to under international human rights law. Lars Bevanger, DW, Manchester. Gary Lineker himself, by the way, was very clear about where the public's attention should be focused. In a statement published on social media, he said, After a surreal few days, I'm delighted that we have navigated a way through this. I want to thank you all for the incredible support, particularly my colleagues at BBC Sport, for the remarkable show of solidarity. Football is a team game, but their backing was overwhelming. I've been presenting sport on the BBC for almost three decades and am immeasurably proud to work with the best and fairest broadcaster in the world. I cannot wait to get back in the match of the day chair on Saturday. A final thought. However difficult the last few days have been, it simply doesn't compare to having to flee your home from persecution or war to seek refuge in a land far away. It's heartwarming to have seen the empathy towards their plight from so many of you. In the coming weeks on Inside Europe, we'll be looking more closely at moves to curb the right to asylum in the UK and also elsewhere in Europe. We'll also be reporting from Calais, where migrants wait to make the perilous journey across the channel from France. So do subscribe to our podcast to make sure that you don't miss any of that important reporting. For now, though, we continue with our media impartiality theme as we move to Turkey, where rights groups are warning that independent Turkish media are facing fines and arrests over critical reporting of President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's handling of February's devastating earthquakes. As Dorian Jones reports from Istanbul, the battle over control of the disaster narrative could prove key to determining the outcome of May's presidential elections. Local media like Jin News were in the forefront of reporting on February's deadly earthquakes highlighting what critics claim was a slow response of the government and emergency services reporting that drew unwanted attention by the police explains Jin News reporter Sema Çalak. First, they prevented us from working. Instead of reporting from the quake hit area, 
we were made to wait for two hours. The police took our press cards and then they took us to the police precinct. We were kept there for three to four hours and we were questioned, why did you come to the quake zone? The New York-based NGO, Human Rights Watch, released a video condemning the arrest of several journalists covering the quake, along with having their equipment confiscated or even destroyed in some cases. The government insists there is no systematic policy against the media, claiming any instances of interference resulted from individual officers working in a difficult situation. But independent TV stations like Halt TV, critical of the government's handling of the quake, were also targeted by heavy fines and temporary broadcasting bans for allegedly insulting public hatred. Halt TV News Editor-in-Chief Bengu Sharp Baba Eker. More than 90% of Turkish media is under government control. We knew we could be fined because we're giving earthquake survivors a voice. But what we're really afraid of is being completely shut down. So there's self-censorship and extreme care in our reporting to try and avoid this. International rights groups have condemned the fines, saying the TV stations were only engaged in critical reporting and that the penalties have more to do with looming elections. Errol Undeolu, Turkey representative for the Paris-based Reporters Without Borders. We should underline that these fines are targeting this main critical TV station before the upcoming elections, which are supposed to take place on 14th of May. So it is also a way to weaken financially critical media in Turkey. And of course, to control the discourse that the government tried to impose to public opinion. Prosecutors have started using newly introduced legislation, criminalizing disinformation on social media, a crime that carries jail time. With looming presidential elections, journalists predict pressure can only grow. Jin News journalist Sema Çalak. There's the reality, and we try to show it through our reporting. The public who saw the reality no longer has faith in the state. From the first day of the quake until now, the question was, where is the government? I don't think the pressure of the government on the press will decrease, and I think it will become more difficult with the election process. Control of the quake narrative could well be key to deciding the May presidential elections, which is why TV News Baba Eker says independent media poses such a threat to the government and President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's dream of re-election. The government wants to fight the elections by saying that this earthquake is unprecedented, that no country could have coped with it, and despite this, great miracles have been achieved. But the stories that we tell, that reflect the reality on the ground, are very damaging to the government's narrative. Will critical voices continue to hold Erdogan and his government to account over the handling of the disaster? Or will they be silenced? With the death toll now topping 50,000 and millions still left homeless, this may be one instance in which reality is simply so big and so serious that attempts to shape the script will not be enough to quell the political aftershocks. 
As for the presidential elections, they are scheduled to take place in May. Doreen Jones, DW, Istanbul. Another incredibly high-stakes battle around narrative control is, of course, that which is taking place around the issue of climate breakdown and what to do about it. To help you pick your way through the competing voices, we recommend DW's Living Planet podcast. Many of our countries are experiencing extreme weather patterns. I think the game is over, you know. Because it's happening more and more, and it's no longer this futuristic, hypothetical thing. You realise that, you know, this isn't a long, slow evolution of change. This is rapid. Living Planet, with Charlie Shield and Sam Baker. Environment stories from around the world. And you can only take so much out of the bank until there's nothing left in the bank. No other animal there steps up to fill its role. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. And the Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature goes to, well, Navalny, as it happens. So congratulations to director Daniel Roja for his portrait of Russia's imprisoned opposition leader for that win last weekend. We, however, are going to focus on two very different films this week. The first is a documentary recently aired in Poland, where perception of the late Polish-born Pope John Paul II is changing following media revelations detailing his apparent practice of sweeping church paedophile scandals under the carpet during his time as Archbishop of Krakow. Parliament has tabled a resolution against what it terms a smear campaign and the country's nationalist leaders have branded the news as fake. But activists who've been trying to discover the truth for years are convinced that there is enough well-documented evidence to prove that the claims are indeed correct. From Warsaw, Julian Berner files this report. Polish viewers said wide-eyed in front of the screens last week as the independent station TVN24 aired this disturbing documentary about the role the late Pope John Paul II apparently played in covering up church paedophilia scandals. In it, his former associate described the case of a priest guilty of molesting underage boys. Instead of being punished, he was transferred to a church-run research centre in Vienna. In a chilling twist, the then-archbishop Karol Wojtyła wrote him a letter of recommendation saying he was best suited to work as a child psychologist. It was not the first time TVN24 has exposed such scandals, but this documentary seems to have touched a raw nerve with the authorities in Warsaw. The following day, the US ambassador was summoned to the Polish Foreign Ministry. TVN24 is part of the Warner Brothers Discovery CNN US media group, and the Polish government made it clear it had objections to what it described as the station's agenda, as the ministry spokesman Łukasz Jasina explained. 
We have invited the U.S. ambassador to discuss a difficult case, one which we hope won't pose an obstacle to our alliance. We have strong reservations concerning a U.S.-owned TV station which operates here and which we believe is dividing Polish society. The ambassador was briefed on our concerns. The incident may seem bizarre by Western media standards, but the fact that the Polish government expected the White House to tell a CNN partner station in Poland to avoid certain topics fits in with its philosophy that the state should have the final say in everything. And that includes the way the late Polish Pope should be perceived. The nationalist-dominated parliament rushed through a resolution to protect the good name of John Paul II. Speaker of the House Elżbieta Witek said emotionally that he united Polish people and whoever sought to extinguish this flame would be met with a firm no. Witek described him as a beacon of freedom under communism and said that attempts to destroy his image will fail. Jan Paweł II papież. Wołam wraz z wami wszystkimi. Niech stąpi duch twój. During the Pope's first visit home in 1979, Poles took his now legendary sermon at an open-air mass in Warsaw as a veiled encouragement to resist the communist rulers. Historians agree that his role in bringing communism in Eastern Europe to an end was instrumental. But once Poland became democratic again, the church's attempts to control public morality became controversial. Criticism of the church has peaked following the recent revelations of how the episcopate protected pedophile priests. Left-wing MP Joanna Scheuring-Wielgus is part of a group which investigates wrongdoings among the clergy in this respect. I'm convinced that John Paul II did know about what was going on and he either turned a blind eye or actively swept things under the carpet. We've gathered evidence to that effect at the Vatican. The problem is that the only thing you can hear from the Polish church is that it is under attack. But no one is attacking it. We just want to get to the truth. We are fighting for the dignity of the victims. That's all we care about. But while much of the clergy seems to be in denial about one of the church's darkest secrets, the more liberal priests are calling for a more open approach. One of them is philosopher Father Andrzej Szostak. The church must start the process of soul-searching. It must free itself from stereotypes such as that anyone who criticizes it is an enemy. It'll be a painful process, but it's the only way. But for many, especially younger Polish Catholics, this looks like too little too late. The past year alone has seen a record number of people leave the church, including some of the country's most popular artists. 23-year-old medical student Dorota grew up in a staunchly Roman Catholic family. But she believes her recent decision to part ways with the church is the right one. I think it's impossible for church to have any future if they continue to say things they're saying now. And because times are changing, people are changing. Nowadays, church doesn't live up to the times we are living now and just stays backwards. 
Analysts are divided over how the current debate on John Paul II may affect the outcome of Poland's general elections this autumn. Some say the ruling Law and Justice Party, strongly allied to the Church, may find it easier to rally its supporters around the common cause. Others on the Liberal side believe that the time has finally come for voters to face inconvenient facts about the past, so that a new and healthier relationship between the state and the Church can be built in the future. Julian Berner, DW, Warsaw. Digging up the past can be a contentious business, but we're going to end the show with a film set 230 years ago, so we should be safe, right? Well, go back 230 years in French history and you find yourself slap bang in the middle of the French Revolution, proud origin of the French political system, flag and national anthem. In Vendée, in the west of France, however, the folk memory remains strong of the approximately 200,000 people killed for standing up to the revolution, many of them massacred civilians. Now, a film to the glory of the leader of the Vendée Rebellion, a sort of French braveheart, some are calling it, is stoking up controversy about this episode in French history and its place in the foundation of modern France. This report from John Lawrenson starts at a cinema in Versailles, the former seat of the French monarchy. A crowd files into the cinema to see Vanquish or Die, the motto of Charette, the young nobleman who peasants went to get out of his chateau in 1793 to lead their fight against a revolution that had killed their king and queen and threatened to destroy their religion. Charette's pitchfork army won some victories before meeting defeat at the hands of the Republic's forces that was followed up with a spree of burning rape and murder in which some 40,000 civilians were massacred. It was a dark hour for a revolution carried out in the name of the rights of man and people here say telling this story in cinemas is long overdue. Oui, je crois que c'est important. I think it's important to debunk the myth of the revolution. It wasn't all good, all clean. It wasn't the people that rose up against the elites. It's much more complicated than that. Yes, the French people wanted change, but not to have their history and their culture snatched away from them. It's our history that's been hidden. Let's be clear about that. Not mentioned in school books. The history of France, of the French Republic, has been built on these massacres. Don't forget, the national anthem, the Marseillaise, is a call to massacre. Which may sound like an extreme interpretation, but the last words the football fans sing in the stadiums are let impure blood quench the thirst of the furrows of our fields. The film is the first produced by the phenomenally successful historical theme park Le Puy du Fou, which is situated in Vendée, three hours west of Paris, where two million people come every year to see its spectacular shows built around moments in local and French history. Mais 
Vanquish or Die is based on a Prix du Fou show and some of the scenes are shot in its decor. The park was created by the politician Philippe de Villiers, who is an out-and-proud Catholic and Conservative and a bit of a royalist to boot. This is reflected in the shows, some of which he writes, which may explain the very hostile reaction to the film from some critics. Puy du Fourbe headlined the left-wing daily Libération. A Fourbe is a liar. Not true, says Nicolas de Villiers, Philippe de Villiers' son, who now runs the theme park and who co-wrote the film's screenplay. At the end of the reading of this article in Liberation, you will see that they just criticised some details of the storytelling, but not the facts themselves, you know, because the truth is that there were some massacres here in the west of Vendée. It's a true story, and Charret did exist. And the peasants and this Catholic army did exist. And no historians can contest it. Liberation declined to comment. But the historian Guillaume Lancereau, co-author of a book called Puis du Faux, faux meaning false, an investigation into a park that deforms history, agreed to talk about the film. When I asked him whether it was historically inaccurate, he said... Historians are not fact-checkers. The problem, he said, is that it instrumentalises history to promote certain values. The movie is clearly an ode to the author and the crown. It's a Catholic and royalist production. But it's just one of these elements of cultural production that are trying to give a friendly face to the old regime, to its system of inequality, of intolerance and oppression. What we're trying to do is simply to raise attention as to the political dimension of this entertainment company that has become a key player in the contemporary French culture wars. And back in that packed cinema in Versailles, they're loving it. At the end, they even applaud. This is not the US. People don't applaud films in France. Highly unusual. John Lawrence and DW, Versailles. We don't expect applause on Inside Europe either, although likes and ratings on podcast platforms are very much appreciated since they really do help other listeners to find us. That is it for today. The programme was produced by me, Kate Laycock, with help from Nick Martin and sound engineer Michel Springer. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in Germany. Germany.